And then I would invite you now to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. Today is a monumental day for our church, and it's monumental for a couple reasons. It's monumental because today is the, the start of the new ministry year, and we're very excited for uh, what the Lord has in store for us this year. This is always a, a fun, exciting time of year as we anticipate God working in our church, growing us. He promises to do that. He promises that the work He began in us, He will complete. And so we're excited that He's going to do that work this year. We look forward to that with anticipation, and we'll be uh, telling you more about that uh, today. So please stay for that meeting. But it's important and monumental as well, because today is the day we begin our study of the book of Romans. It's a day I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Uh, time. I have never preached through the book of Romans. I have preached from the book of Romans. I have never preached through the book of Romans. And I have been waiting over the last 18 years of preaching for this moment. I've thought about the right time to do this. I've been waiting for uh, the most fitting time in ministry, my ministry, to preach this book. And up to this point, I have contemplated it a number of times over those 18 years, but I have never felt it was quite the right time to preach the book of Romans for a few reasons. First of all, for a number of those years, I was in college ministry, and uh, collegians tend to come and go and are transient, and I felt like I want to save that book for later. Part of it was, over the last few, 10 years here being at Maranatha, I've been wondering when the right time was, and up to this point, I don't feel like it's been the right time yet to preach uh, the book of Romans in the last 10 years here at Maranatha. I'm not sure we were quite ready for it, but I'll be honest with you. The real reason I've been hesitant to preach this book is because I'm not sure I'm up for it. <laughs> I'm not sure up to this point I've really been up for the task of preaching this book, wondering if I have the preaching skills, the study skills, and the spiritual maturity to tackle this book. And I confess to you this morning that some of those questions still linger in my mind as we now today start our study of the book of Romans. I told the elders just a couple weeks ago that I feel like I'm standing at the bottom of a cliff looking straight up and wondering, how am I going to get up there? That's what it feels like. Or maybe it feels a little bit like the beginning of every Ironman race I've done and wondering how in the world will I get through two and a half mile swim and a 112 mile bike and a full marathon after that? How will we get through a day like that? And I feel a little bit that way as I think about preaching through the book of Romans, a little fear, a little trepidation. And so I've come at many times in my ministry to the point of, of thinking about preaching this book, and, and yet I've, I've always backed away. I think I've been intimidated by this book, not just by its length, but by its depth. This is a meaty book. It's a profoundly deep book. It is filled with all kinds of marvelous descriptions of the gospel. It describes the beauty, the magnificence, the glory, and the wonder of the gospel. And for that reason, I believe it is one of the greatest letters ever written. It's a tremendous book which proclaims the gospel in all of its facets, which describes for us how Christ has become our Savior, what justification by faith is, what it means to be united with Christ, the hope of glory, the, the assurance of God's unending love, His transformed life which He grants us through Christ, the mystery of God's sovereign electing grace, and all these instructions that just permeate this incredible book about the church striving together for the work of the gospel. It is, in my opinion, Paul's crowning jewel. And probably for all of those reasons, I've been somewhat intimidated to step into the pulpit and preach this book. But I feel like the time is right. 
And I feel like it's time for us as a church to tackle this book for a few reasons. First, I feel like it's right personally, as I personally am ready to immerse myself in the study of this grand book and plummet's depths. And I feel like it's right not only personally, but I feel like it's right corporately as well for us as a church body at Maranatha that God has worked mightily in this body over the last few years to bring us to a point where I think we are ready to eat this solid food as a church family. I think it's right personally. I think it's right corporately. I also think it's right culturally. And by that I mean never before in the history of America has the gospel been more needed. Maybe that's an overstatement, but I would argue that our country is at a place, a crossroads, where the sole answer to the issues facing our nation is the gospel. This is the greatest need of our country as we watch before our eyes a nation disintegrating. As we watch our country on a moral slide, the answer is never going to be found in politics or government or legislation. The answer is not going to be found in modifying behavior. The answer is not going to be found in shallow self-help, drivel, or fluffy feel-good messages. Those are not the answers to what ails our country. The only answer for a country in a moral freefall like ours is the gospel. And so I am convinced that the only answer for us as a nation is the rock-solid, durable, unshakable old truths of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and justification by faith. I have no idea how long it's going to take us to work through this book. Don't ask. (laughs) Don't guess. I was reading about this week Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher who spent 13 years preaching through Romans and only made it to chapter 14 when he died. (laughs) I'm not predicting anything. I'm not planning anything, but if I go out in the book of Romans, it's a pretty good book to go out on. We're going to take some breaks along the way. We're going to go slow at points. We're going to go fast at points, but bottom line, we are going to immerse ourselves in the study of what I believe to be the greatest letter ever written. It is the good news epistle. And throughout history, throughout church history, this book has been used by God to cause incredible growth and incredible change and has been causing a huge impact for the last 2,000 years. Let me give you some examples. It was the reading and the study of this book that the great reformer Martin Luther came to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. As he was preparing his lectures and studying this book, he could not get around and wrestling with what the righteousness of God really meant upon his life, and trying to square with how he, a sinner, could be right with the righteousness of God until the light went on and he understood that the very righteousness of God described in this book has been credited to the count of believers. And it was then that he understood the gospel in its fullest sense and came to Christ. And he said this, he said, The chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which indeed deserves that a Christian not only know it word for word by heart, but deal with it daily as with daily bread of the soul. For it can never be read or considered too much or too well, and the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes and the better it tastes. End quote. That's what he said in reference to the book of Romans. John Calvin, another church reformer, said this. He said, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle... He has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. 
Calvin said, when you understand this book and you unlock this book, you have opened all of the hidden treasures in the Scripture contained here in the book of Romans. The noted scholar F.F. F. Bruce once said this, he said, there is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the epistle to the Romans. And that's my prayer as we launch into this book today, that we have no idea what God will do and might do as we immerse ourselves in this marvelous book. The English poet Samuel Coleridge, referring to the book of Romans, said this. He said, it is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. William Tyndale was so convinced about the importance of this book, who he who translated the entire scriptures into English was so impacted by this book that he believed every Christian should memorize it in its entirety. That's your assignment before next Sunday. Okay? There'll be tests as you enter the door. John Chrysostom, the early church father who was known as Golden Mouth because of his eloquence in speaking, had this book read to him twice a week. And after hearing it read so many times, he said this, he said, Romans is unquestionably the fullest, the deepest compendium of all sacred foundation truths, end quote. Twice a week, this book was read to him, and his conclusion was it was the fullest and the deepest of all the sacred books. Frederick Godet, the Swiss theologian, said this. He says, every moment of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected to the teachings set forth in Romans. And it is probably that every great spiritual renovation in the church will always be linked, both in cause and effect, to a deeper knowledge of this book. That's a powerful statement, that every revival in the history of the church has been somehow linked to the study, the appreciation, and the application of this book. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to see. It was studying the book of Romans that the great church father, Augustine, was converted. He was living a profligate life. He was sitting in his yard one day with his head in his hands, weeping about the condition of his life and wondering how he could be right with God and how he could recover from this sinful lifestyle that he was engaged in. And as he's sitting there in his yard, he hears a young child singing a song in Latin, tole lege, tole lege, which in English means take up and read, take up and read. So Augustine went and found the nearest thing that he could read, and in it was a scroll that contained a portion of the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 14, which says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And it was through the reading of that section of Romans that Augustine was converted and became one of the church's outstanding theologians and leaders. It was this book. that turned John Bunyan into a spiritual giant to the point that he could write a book called Pilgrim's Progress, which is the second most sold book in the history of the world next to the Bible. There's no saying what can happen when you unleash the power of the book of Romans. One writer has said this, he said, quote, it has been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius, yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and clothe you with eternal elegance. That's what this book stands capable of doing. 
It has had a tremendous impact throughout church history, and I would argue that it likewise has had a huge impact in my life. That God has used the book of Romans to marvelously transform me and grow me, and I am a different man today because of the study of this book. It was this book that God used to help me understand the gospel when I was first saved. It was this book that God helped me learn how to share the gospel through the Romans road and all those marvelous verses throughout the book of Romans that you can use to lead someone to Christ. It was this book that Julie and I first studied together in small group as we were first married in Spokane. It was this book that excited me about the doctrines of grace. Romans chapter 8 and 9, it was, it was speak of, of God's sovereignty in drawing sinners to himself. It was this book. It's this book that's ministered to me in times of trial and trouble. And it's this book that's helped me understand the one another's and how to deal with people who I've been in conflict with. And so I would say that this book has profoundly marked my life. My hope and prayer is that it will profoundly mark the life of this church as well. It's a tremendously practical book. It's going to describe for us and tell us why men reject God. It's going to tell us why there are false religions in the world. It's going to tell us how a person who's never heard of Christ can be held spiritually accountable. It's going to teach us about true saving faith and the justification by grace through faith alone. It's going to tell us about how we as believers can make sense of our trials. It's going to teach us about what our relationship as Christians are to sin and how to overcome that sin and walk in the Spirit. It's going to teach us about God's plan for Israel and whether believers can lose their salvation today. It's going to teach us about spiritual gifts about our role with government and our relationship to government. It's going to teach us about the importance of unity in the church, and it's going to teach us how not to be a stumbling block to fellow believers, and the list goes on and on and on. Tremendous book. I believe the study of this book is going to push us into maturity as a church family. It's going to cause us to grow, to mature, to, to make us more like Christ. It's going to deepen the roots of our faith and cause us to better understand who we are and who Christ is. It's going to, appreciate, uh, it's going to cause appreciation more for the gospel as we understand the work of Christ on our behalf. It's going to promote our evangelism and make us better and more effective evangelists for the sake of Christ. And all of that's going to affect our worship. This is all what's in store for us as we start upon this book today. And the question I want to ask as we begin today is, how is it that this book has had the potential to impact so many people at such a degree? What is it about this book? How is it this book has been the favorite of so many people? And how is it that it's been responsible for converting and regenerating so many people? And how is it possible that this book has been the flame at which many Christians have fired their torches, which has launched a tidal wave of revival? What is it? There's many answers to that question. One of those answers is that this book was written by a man who understood and experienced the transforming power of the gospel. It's written by a man who once opposed Christ and hated Christ and persecuted the church, a former Jewish Pharisee who hated Christianity and, and helped kill the first Christian martyr. It was a man who, who really hated Christ and the gospel and the church 
and it was written by a man who was ultimately transformed by that Christ. Marvelously, gloriously, a man who knew just how good the good news really was because he was the recipient of it. And so if anyone understood the power of the gospel, it was Paul. Because he experienced it, he understood its ability to transform lost sinners into forgiven saints because he himself was one of those. And he wrote with passion and he wrote with zeal. And from the moment his pen hits the paper in chapter 1, it spills forth gospel truths all the way through to the end of the book. And so if anyone was eminently qualified to write a book like this, it was the Apostle Paul. That's where we begin this morning, Romans 1, verse 1, and that's all the farther we'll get today. I promise you we'll take more than one verse a week from here on out. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. What is it about this book? It's written by a man who understood the gospel. It's written by a man who who was the recipient of the grace of the gospel. In fact, you can see it at the end of chapter 1, verse 1, the verse I just read. He has been set apart for the gospel of God. And as you continue reading through the very opening verses of Romans chapter 1, you're going to see the word gospel appear many times. Look down at verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness. Look down in verse 15. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is one of Paul's favorite terms. And he can't get through the first few verses of this book without at least four times declaring the glory of the gospel. Sixty times in Paul's books, he writes about the supremacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news. And that's why we've entitled this message, Romans, the Good News Epistle, because that's what it is. It is the letter of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a reality that so grips Paul that he begins in the very first verse writing about the gospel. He can't even get the pen on the paper and the word gospel spills forth from it. And as you continue through the book, go over to chapter 15, verse 16, through chapter 1, 2, 3, chapter 6, 7, 8, all the way almost to the end, Romans chapter 15, verse 16, look what he's still writing about. He says, I want to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. He's still writing about the gospel. This is what captivates Paul's heart. This is what has gripped him, this marvelous, glorious good news of what Christ has done. And as his pen hits the paper, he begins to write about the glorious facets of this marvelous reality of Jesus Christ. This morning I want to show you three self-identifying phrases from verse 1 that captures Paul's gospel saturation. Three 
self-identifying phrases from chapter 1, verse 1, that capture Paul's gospel saturation. You can see all three of them. A bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Those three things capture Paul's realization of who he is, and maybe more importantly, whose he is. And my friends, when you get that, when you understand not only who you are, but whose you are, those truths begin to affect you mightily, and that's exactly what's happened with the Apostle Paul. Let's look at these three realities that Paul understood about himself. First, number one, he understood that he was redeemed for a slave of Christ. As Paul writes, the first thing that comes off his pen is he understands that he was redeemed to be a slave of Christ. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I love that statement. Think about all the other things that Paul could have written about himself. Paul, the eminent theologian, master of the Old Testament, church planter, missionary extraordinaire, frontline warrior, brilliant of intellect. He was all of those things. But the first thing that comes off his pen is Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, a doulos, that's the Greek word, doulos, which is a word that means servant or slave or a person owned by another person, or someone who is subservient to another. And Paul wants us to understand right from the beginning that he is a bondservant of Christ, a willing slave. He wants us to understand that he is bound by a new master. And what you need to understand behind this term is an Old Testament imagery about a bondservant. Hold your finger in Romans chapter 1 and go back to Exodus chapter 21, and I want to show you what Paul has in mind as he uses this term bond slave. It's a marvelous imagery that describes the willingness of a slave to enter the service of their master permanently, and because Paul uses that terminology, he most likely is referring back to Exodus chapter 21, verse 5. The Old Testament law provided For a slave to be able to voluntarily and permanently enter the service of their master, if they found their master to be loving, kind, gracious, that servant could then invest themselves in the service of their master for the rest of their life and forego their freedom. Look at verse 5, Exodus 21. But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. So here's a slave that says, listen, this master is so kind and so gracious and treats me so well, and my wife and my kids, I want to continue giving my life to this master. I'm not going to be free. I'm not going to choose my freedom. I'm going to choose voluntarily to be a slave for the rest of my life. What is the master to do for him? Look at verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Slave says to the master, I love you so much, and I am so grateful to serve under you that I'm going to do it the rest of my life. 
And the master was to take that slave to the doorpost, take an awl and punch his ear, make a hole in it. And that was a symbol that the slave was saying, I'm a slave of love and I choose to give myself permanently and freely to my master forever. I give myself wholeheartedly to my master and want to serve him the rest of my life. And when you come to Romans chapter 1, that's exactly what Paul's saying. Go back there. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I am doing the same thing essentially for Christ. I've given myself wholeheartedly in love to him who saved me from sin and death, and I'm choosing to serve him the rest of my life, not out of fear, but out of love. He's my master. He's my Lord. He's my Savior, and I am engaged in the rest of my life in the pursuit of knowing him and making him known. What a tremendous statement Paul's commitment to Christ. And you can't blame him, can you? You remember his testimony? We looked at it a few months ago during our baptism service. Let me just hit the highlights for you. You remember that Paul was born in Tarsus. He was born there and he was trained under Gamaliel, the great Jewish law teacher who was the grandson of Hillel, the famous rabbi. Paul got his training there. He became a Pharisee and as such he hated Christians. In fact, the first place Paul, Saul at that point, is mentioned is in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 58. It says this, when they had driven him, meaning Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen was the first martyr, the first Christian to die for the cause of Christ. They put him to death because of his testimony of the gospel. And as they are stoning him and heaping stones upon his head, it is is Saul who is standing there guarding the robes of those who are casting the stones, giving his hearty approval to the death of Stephen. That's the first place Saul has ever heard about. It shows the wickedness of his heart. It shows his rage, which was fomenting below his surface of his heart. It showed how much he hated Christ and hated the church and hated Christians. If you fast forward just a little bit to Acts chapter 8, you see the same thing. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Saul hated the church. He hated Christians. He was ravaging the church, and that's a word that refers to wild animals that were out seeking to destroy things, and that's what Paul was like. He was a wild animal on a terror to destroy the church. If you go over to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, he was still on the warpath. In fact, he had heard about a group of Christians who were in a city called Damascus, and on his way, he hears about them, and he has literally a Damascus Road experience. Acts chapter 9. Paul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue to Damascus so that if any be found belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And Saul, Saul hears about this group of Christians, and he wants to eradicate them and eliminate them and take them to Jerusalem to take them away. He's on his way to wipe them out, to stop the influence of Christianity. Something amazing happened. A bright light shone out of the heavens and arrested Paul. A man who was out to arrest Christians was himself arrested by the very Christ he was seeking to deny. Acts chapter 9 verse 3 says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What an experience this must have been. This was no ordinary light. This was not the light of the noonday sun, because over in Acts chapter 26, it tells us that this took place at the midday, when the sun was at its highest, its brightest, its hottest. And so whatever light this was, it was far brighter than the midday sun. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, that it was brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. What was this? This was the Shekinah glory of the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. This was not some natural or unnatural lights aligning themselves in the sky. No, this was the brilliant glory of Jesus Christ. And Saul is suddenly arrested by Christ. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Saul has come face to face with a risen Christ. What I love about that is it shows who initiates salvation. Granted, our conversions may not be as dramatic. Maybe you didn't come to Christ by Christ shining his Shekinah glory and arresting you on a road. Maybe that's not how it happened for you. It probably isn't. But it tells you who has the onus upon our salvation, who initiates our salvation. It is God who does the work. It is God who pursues. It is God the one who sovereignly draws sinners to himself. Yes, salvation is open to anyone who believes. The gospel is for anyone who believes. And yet at the same time, it is God who is the one who initiates salvation salvation. God pursued Paul, stopped him in his tracks. I have to imagine, what what did Paul think at this point? I have to imagine in an instant, he understood what he was doing. That in an instant, he came face to face with the risen Christ, the very one that he was persecuting. And I have to imagine in his heart, there were daggers of conviction showing him his sin and convicting him of who he was without Christ. And I have to imagine he was crushed into the dust by the weight of his sin. He was blinded, almost speechless, and utterly devastated. Acts chapter 9, verse 9 says that he was without sight and without anything to eat or drink for the next three days. His friends, who as I was thinking about this week, had to have seen the light. 
and yet they weren't blinded. It tells us something about God's sovereign plan for the Apostle Paul. They, they escorted him into the city of Damascus where a man named Ananias came and ministered to him and he came to a point where his sight was restored and it wasn't just his physical sight. It was his spiritual eyes that were now opened. How long did it take for Paul to become a useful vessel for the kingdom of Christ? Not very long. Acts chapter 9, verse 20 says, Now for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to preach Christ in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. You see, when Christ transforms your life, you don't need a lot of instruction. You don't need a lot of training, although you need some to grow. But when you become a follower of Christ, you are instantly a useful vessel for Him. That's what took place with Paul. In a matter of days, he goes from a persecutor of Christ to a preacher for Christ. In a matter of days, he goes from a hater of Christ to a herald of Christ. From an opponent of Christ to a proponent of Christ. You remember the rest of the story. He goes on three missionary journeys. Travels around Asia, minor parts of Europe, proclaiming the gospel, preaching Christ. He was a man who was radically changed, marvelously changed, incredibly transformed by the power of the gospel. He was one who hated Christ and hated the church and hated Christians, and suddenly he comes to know Christ and become a part of the church, and suddenly his whole heart is transformed and his priorities are reoriented, and he's been totally and completely renovated by the person and work of Jesus Christ, and he's never going to be the same. And so in Romans chapter 1, as he begins, he says, you know all I am? I'm just a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's all I am. Uh, That's it. When you read through the rest of his books, he never goes off and says something else. That's pretty much how he describes himself all the way through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He says, I'm just a servant. I'm nobody. I plant, I water, but God causes the growth. I'm just a, a servant. And over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, we are servants of Christ. And the word he uses there is a word that literally means under rowers. He says, really, my life is simply, I'm just simply an under rower of Jesus Christ, which refers to those people who sat in the lowest levels of the ship and pulled the oars in the deep, dark hot recesses of the ship. He says, when it comes down to it, that's all I am. I'm just an under rower of Jesus Christ, a third level galley slave. That's all I am. I'm telling you, when Christ invades your life, that's how he reorients your priorities, right? The things that were once important are no longer important. The things that were not important are now priorities and keys and the things that you pursue this is the glory of the gospel. Turn over for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see one other place that he describes this mentality of being a bond slave of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. This is in the context of sexual immorality, but listen please to 
what he states about himself, about the believer. He says, verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Underline that phrase, mark that phrase, you are not your own. Why? Verse 20, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul wrote that because Paul understood that. When you come to faith in Christ, it's not about you anymore. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price. Your life is not about you. Your body is not yours. You belong to the Lord. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. Free, yes, but a slave of Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here back in Romans chapter 1. He's saying, my life is not about me anymore. I am not my own. My life is not about me. My sole purpose is to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Some of you here this morning, you need to be reminded of that. And if you are here and you know Christ, you're not just saved to live however you want. You are saved to be a bondservant of the King. And you need to be reminded of the fact that your life is not your own, that you're owned by another, that you have a glorious and gracious master. And like Paul, you too are a bond slave of Christ. He is your gracious king and your loving master. And that's what happens with the gospel. The gospel takes you from being a slave to sin to making you into a slave of Christ. So you can see how, as Paul begins writing this book, as he introduces this book and himself to his readers, the one singular thing that he wants us and his readers to understand is that he is one who has been marked by Christ, transformed by the gospel. And this majestic letter that he's going to write is going to be a letter that perfectly displays the marvelous contours of the gospel which he himself has experienced. And that's why we need this book. Do you understand whose you are? Paul understood not only who he was, but he understood whose he was. And I wonder, do you this morning understand? Number two, there is a second reality that Paul understood about himself as he launches into the study of this book, the writing of this book. He understands that, number two, he was sent as an apostle of Christ. Not only was he redeemed for a slave of Christ, he was also sent as an apostle of Christ. Look at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. Called as an apostle. Literally, a called apostle. The other thing that Paul wants his readers to understand about him is that he has been appointed to the task and the responsibility of ministry and the sake of the gospel, not by himself. Not be by any other human appointment or human agent. No, the, the thing he wants them to understand is that his position as an apostle has resulted from the fact that God has called him, God has summoned him, God has appointed him, and he has been created and converted and called for the primary purpose of being a useful king, uh, tool in the king's toolbox. He understands that his work 
His life's work was all of God's doing. Let me tell you, when you go into the ministry, you better be convinced that God has called you to it. You better be certain that this is something God has summoned you to and appointed you to and and brought you to of His providential plan because if not, you will waver in your confidence of what you're actually doing. I can understand that. There's times it's overwhelming. There's times where it's too weighty. The responsibility is too much. There's times in ministry you've got to go back and you say, no, wait, God has called me to this. God has appointed me. He has summoned me to this responsibility. And when those times get tough in ministry, you go back to that. This is God's providential plan for you. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I'm not doing this on my own. I've not appointed myself to this. I've not, I've not in any way been appointed by any human agency. No, God is the one who has called me to this. He has summoned me to this. He's a worker of the gospel. He is an apostle, it says, called as an apostle. What's an apostle? An apostle is a sent one, a representative a commissioned one, a messenger, an ambassador. That's what an apostle is. He is one who has been summoned by God to be commissioned and sent out as a messenger on behalf of the king. Paul was one of those big A apostles. There were just a few, maybe 14. The 12, plus Matthias, who replaced Judas, plus Paul, who was... One, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, untimely chosen. He was one who came to be an apostle after the original 12 were appointed to that. He was one of those big A apostles. There were just a few. And the only reason there were just a few is because you had to be an eyewitness to Christ and His resurrection. Those were the requirements to be an apostle. You had to be an eyewitness to Christ and His earthly ministry and an eyewitness to His resurrection and see Him after His resurrection. Paul was one of those special people, gifted by the Lord, selected by Christ, and endowed with a special ability from the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament Scriptures. He was given all of those immense privileges, even to do signs and wonders and mighty deeds and miracles to confirm and authenticate the message of the gospel. And because of that, he and the other apostles, Ephesians 2.20 says, provide the foundation upon which the church is built. Think about that. 2,000 years later, at Maranatha Bible Church, the foundation of this church has been built upon the apostles and the prophets. Tremendous. By the way, in case you were wondering, there are no apostles today. You all are little a apostles We're all messengers. We all take the gospel. We all preach Christ. We all take the message of the gospel to those around us who don't know Christ. But there's no big A apostles today for a couple of reasons. Number one, you only lay a foundation once. The foundation of the church has already been laid through the work of those men 2,000 years ago. There's no need to lay another foundation. And secondly, there are none alive today who've witnessed Christ in his earthly ministry or seen him after his resurrection. So there are no big A apostles no matter what people tell you. But Paul was. 
one of those very special people called and summoned by God to be an agent of the gospel. Three, number three. There's one last reality that Paul understood about himself. He understood that he was, number three, commissioned unto the gospel of Christ. Redeemed for a slave of Christ, sent as an apostle of Christ. Thirdly, commissioned unto the gospel of Christ. Look at the last phrase in verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. Aphorizo, which is the word set apart. Aphorizo, sound like the word Pharisee? That's what the word Pharisee means. The word Pharisee means set apart for the law. And Paul uses the very term that he was very familiar with as a Pharisee himself. He says, I have been aphorizo as a, a representative of the gospel. He was, in a sense, a Pharisee for the gospel. Set apart to be a preacher of the gospel. And did you know that he was set apart from his birth? Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 says, But God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul looks back to the very moment of his birth and realizes that it was then, even before the foundation of the world, that God set Paul apart for the sake of the gospel. You say, whoa, wait a minute. If that's the case, why did he have to go through that whole life of being a persecutor of the church, part of God's providential plan. Saved, converted, commissioned, set apart for the gospel of God. Listen, when God sets you apart, you go. When God marks you and appoints you and summons you, you go. And that's exactly what Paul did. Missionary, church planter, evangelist, pastor, preacher, and writer of the book of Romans. A gospel-saturated book written by a gospel-saturated man in order to produce gospel-saturated people. That's who we want to be, right? It's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a church that's marked by Christ. Not by this world. Not by the passing pleasures of this world. We want to be a church and we want to be a people who is marked by Christ. And over the next few weeks, months, and yes, even years, we are going to be changed and transformed to look more like Jesus and be better representatives of the gospel as we immerse ourselves in this book. I'm excited. I hope you're excited because we've got a lot of material to work with. Father, we thank you so much for introducing us this morning to this book. It is a book we need. It is a book that we get to sink our teeth into. And it is a book that we're excited about. Lord, we pray that as we embark upon our study of the book of Romans, that you will change us. 
that we will realize that the gospel is not just for us when we got saved. The gospel is for us every day, and we need to preach to ourselves the glorious realities of the gospel. And as we come back week by week, Lord, continue to cement the truths of this marvelous book in the deep recesses of our heart. Let us be reminded of Paul's passion and zeal and vigor for the good news of Jesus Christ, and let us also be marked by that same passion and zeal. Remind us that we are simply bondservants of Christ. Free, yes, but a slave to Christ. And may you use us mightily for the sake of your kingdom. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.